Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. The three questions we're going to be asking today and answering are, first up, how will in-person visa interview waivers impact enrollments in the coming year? Second, how has the international student landscape changed in the past year? And third, is Justin Trudeau right about how the West should approach China? We're going to take a look at these three questions and more on today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup for Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. So let's get right into our first question of the day. You may remember a story uh, in the early part of the fall of this past year where we had uh, the U.S. Department of State at a time when uh, visa interview time slots available were really uh, minimal. And we had a real backlog of interest for students who were trying to get in for the fall and eventually realizing weren't going to get in for the fall, now deferring to the spring, and what that was meaning for uh, U.S. colleges and universities that were attempting to enroll these students. At the time, the waiver was put in place uh, that was going to be good through the end of 2021 that would allow prospective students uh, who had been approved for a visa previously and those that had already had um, were, were, were try attempting to renew their F-1 student visa that uh, they would have the ability to waive that in-person interview, which was one of the main causes for the backlog in uh, appointment times that was happening in many of the top destination markets for, uh, for uh, source countries, I should say, for U.S.-bound student, US students. So what, what we have to take a look at here is the, the announcement just this past week that that in-person visa interview waiver is now extended through all of 2022. The reasons for that are something we want to take a look at. And that's what we'll do here today in, in answering this first question. Uh, when you look at, if you're not familiar with how uh, the uh, U.S. consulates abroad uh, in all the visa interviews they do, not just for students, but for other uh, um, significant non-immigrant and immigrant visa categories, they are, uh, by design um, and by government mandate, are self-funded. So and that means that uh, or, or the, the, their fees that they charge uh, are, they are on a full cost recovery basis. And that's the technical government terminology used for, for much of what State Department's consular officers do, what the Department of Commerce operates under as well, cost recovery methods that anything that they charge is to, to recover costs, like the CVIS fee that manages the CVIS uh, database. Uh, that is our cost recovery program as well. So all the fees by international students uh, paying the CVIS fees to, in order to apply for their student visas, that covers, the, supposed to cover the cost of the uh, the system and management of the system, maintenance, all of those wonderful things, employment of staff to monitor, all of these things. Uh, similarly, in consular officers um, overseas, the, um, the the fees that are charged, and, and in this case, we're talking about the DS-160 fee, uh, which uh, there's been recent uh, draft rules that are, are look, looking to increase that from $160 to $245, and we'll have a story about that in our newsletter next week 
on January 10th. But uh, the, because there are a couple of different reasons uh, why the fees are going up, uh, and the primary one of which is that since the pandemic, and in March 2020, we all remember, maybe have trouble remembering two years ago almost, when everything kind of shut down, um, services were shut down at many uh, U.S. Con all, basically all U.S. consulates and embassies overseas, that uh, visas interview processing wasn't done, staff was reduced dramatically as a result at overseas consulates, the visa officers, the consular officers that are the foreign service officers in their first or second, third postings are uh, were, were cut back, uh, sent home. Uh, the State Department has employed them elsewhere. So the, the since the since March of 2020, there was a serious loss of revenue uh, for the State Department. Uh, and, and we look at the knock-on effects of not having students in the United States since that time in significant numbers. Uh, we look at that as a way of uh, checking, uh, checking the various uh, elements that we're talking about here related to um, the international students that were not able to enroll physically in March of uh, in the fall in 2020 because of the pandemic because they couldn't get visa appointments uh, because the borders were closed we also have 2021 impacted that way we saw that um, we did see that a lot of uh, students that were had were had maybe gone home early in the pandemic uh, decided not to, uh, uh, that we're, we're trying to return for 2020 or 2021, uh, weren't able to get visa appointments. And as a result of that, there was a lot of, um, a lot of frankly, damage done that uh, in terms of uh, obviously two institutions that were trying to re-enroll them uh, physically in the United States. There was also challenges with uh, overseas at consular, consular posts that these students were not able to, uh, that were looking to come back finally, were not able to get the visa interviews that they that they needed, and we want to talk about what that what that visa interview waiver actually what who was covered under that. There are again a lot of non-immigrant visa categories included in this, but the there are basically four criteria that individual students, visiting professors, researchers needed to meet. And uh, Karen Fisher summarized this recently in her weekly newsletter. I'm just uh, 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 repeating what she's what she's categorized here as well. They, first, uh, the students would have to have been previously issued any type of U.S. visa. So it's not just for visa renewals for students that were looking to come back in. It could be used by new students if they had. A, if on the off chance they'd maybe visited the United States before on a visitor visa, so. If they had previously been issued a, 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 any type of U.S. visa, had, had never been refused a visa unless that refusal was overcome or waived, have no apparent ineligibility um, in terms of funding or other things, and are applying for the visa in the country of their nationality or residence, so they're in their home country. Uh, from the country they have their passport from. So that is at the discretion of local consular officers. So <clears throat> it's not a guarantee, but the likelihood is it would happen. So it, all, it extends the wave for waiving the interviews for those that are renewing visas that are in the same class within 48 months of the prior vis visa's expiration date. So uh, and that would be, they'd allow them to, uh, to have that visa uh, renewal without the in-person interview. So this is the good news, uh, that 
both new and returning students, if they meet these four criteria, again, for new students, it's a lot harder to meet that first criteria where we previously issued any type of U.S. visa. Because if this is their first experience with the United States, they're not going to be eligible for this in-person visa waiver because they've never gone through the security clearances and all the other processes that the, the consulates, consulates and embassies do. So one of the reasons this has been reintroduced is because there's these significant backlogs. The significant backlogs in visa appointment times, wait times not being available, is because uh, the embassies and consulates aren't back up to full staff yet, staffing yet. And they're not back up to full staffing because they haven't had the funding for the last two years that has been generated from these visa fees. Uh, this, these DS-160 fees that haven't been paid because students haven't been able to get these interviews because embassies were closed for a larger part of a year uh, before many of them reopened to any extent. So they were on emergency use only or emergency availability only. Uh, so that we're at a position now when things are, even though COVID is still raging and with the Omicron variant, uh, even though it's a milder form that has, has impacts in various countries. So it's not just what's happening in the United States that's a, an issue. It's what's happening in every single country where, these, where students are that are looking to come. There are local circumstances that may be beyond the control of the, of the State Department and the local embassy or consulate. So uh, in terms of their ability to open, ability to have fully functional staff, uh, modifications that need to be done to consulates and embassies to facilitate in-person uh, visas, there may be reduced uh, ability to have uh, because of traffic, social distancing concerns, local health regulations may not be able to have uh, six feet. And, and those, if you've ever seen these waiting rooms where students um, would go for their interviews, they're often heavily overcrowded and uh, security issues and, and health, health and safety issues obviously have to take precedent now. Have always taken precedent um, on, on the security side, but are now also impacted by health and safety. So we're looking at um, uh, embassies and consulates that have been severely depleted in staffing. We've uh, had a lack of revenue for the last two years to help fund these uh, from DS-160 fees that help fund these positions to do the interviews in person. So basically they're off operating on some deficit spending and within the State Department, special funding they're getting in order to do what they are doing in terms of processing the visas. So they're not focusing for the renewal piece and for those that have previously issued visas, uh, U.S. visas that aren't ineligible, they can uh, be that they're they're considered a lower risk, and so that they they can waive the in-person piece. That's not going to be the case for for the lion's share first-time students that are, are coming to the United States. So it does account for a portion. Certainly, will facilitate easy, easier return of continuing students who still haven't been able to get back into the country. May allow for students that do need to go home for. Uh, uh, emergencies or family vacations or, or summer breaks uh, may have opportunities uh, to renew and get that process done in a timely manner, not have to do an in-person interview and still be able to get their papers, uh, renew visa to return in, uh, in the next academic term when that ever, whenever that begins. So the impact will be significant on the returning student side uh, for those that need to renew that have been holding off on going home. Uh, for a while because uh, they're worried about this whole visa renewal process and, they, and, their, and their ability to be able to get back in to the United States. So that will have a significant impact on those, th th that category. And that's a, a large portion of the international students currently in the United States and allowing them to freely go home and then return 
to uh, re return to their home country, get their uh, visa renewal without an in-person interview, and be able to return to the United States. So that's a, that's the good news. So for a lion's share of, of students that are already in the United States or that might need to go home and renew, that's a positive. Or are looking to come back after the pandemic, that, that's a real positive. So if for a very limited fraction of the new students that are coming in each term for 2022, will this be of, of use unless they've been in the United States previously? Uh, so that, that's, that's the positive impact that we're talking about here. So the articles that I'm sharing, as I do every week with the Roundup, I drop the links to these articles in the comments section on our Facebook page for this live event on Wednesday, January 5th. Uh, if you would like to get the links to all of them, if you're not watching live, uh, you can go to the Facebook page, find the events, and find the links. But you can also uh, get our the latest edition of our newsletter at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. I'll have the, the list of all the current or recent editions of the newsletter. And if you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter free of charge, drop your uh, click the link for subscribe on that link on that site I just gave you. And you'll, you'll get that newsletter Monday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern in your inbox. And then we'll cover the stories that we uh, do here on Wednesdays. Those, those links will already you'll already have those in your newsletter on Monday. So that's our first story for the week. Um, and we want to move into our second story where we talk about something that is a, just a monster of a story, really, in terms of uh, student recruitment's evolution internationally in the last year, year and a half, almost two years with the pandemic. So we had seen prior to the pandemic there was a lot of movement of, on the service provider side uh, toward uh, providing better analytics, towards providing uh, more, uh, uh, more technology-based services uh, that allowed uh, institutions to extend their reach uh, as they recruited abroad instead of having to rely on boots on the ground, either through massive agent networks to um, to physical travel overseas to recruit students. Institutions were beginning to have a, a wider assortment of options available in the ed tech space for international recruitment to help enhance what they were already doing on in-person or boots on the ground uh, spaces. So what we've, what we've seen uh, really in 2021, and the pandemic certainly drove uh, a real hyper expansion phase of the ed tech space uh, internationally. Uh, we, we saw the moves even by a major uh, uh, either agents or fair providers uh, to go fully online, uh, moving tech first, in fact. Uh, this would be examples of FPP EduMedia, uh, one of the major in-person fair providers in, uh, before the pandemic, uh, making the commitment last year to go fully online with everything that they do. They were abandoning in-person events, uh, and that was uh, they, they were relying on the pla a platform that they've been using and developing, fine-tuning, and really uh, pushing the boat out on how that was going to be the way that they really um, focus their business model moving forward. You saw folks like TC Global, this is from a Pi News article, uh, that uh, they would be moving tech first as well. QS uh, acquired a students, student apply in November, saw that as a move into the end-to-end -end enrollment space. 
you see a lot of uh, these kind of things happening. You've seen the rise of the uh, the agent aggregators uh, that are exclusively online based uh, with Applyboard, uh, with Eventus.io, with uh, Educo, and a few others. Uh, you've seen a lot of mergers and acquisitions that have happened in the past year. Uniquest was uh, acquired by uh, Keystone Academic Solutions that also uh, uh, also acquired Find a University, uh, merged with EMG as well. Uh, so Keystone Academic Solutions is quietly becoming a, a much sig more significant player in um, kind of trying to be that end-to-end -end space again. Uh, they, uh, there's a wide range of these kind of mergers in the, in the works with uh, acquisitions happening. Uh, you saw these uh, these tech platforms like Cialfo uh, really uh, going gangbusters with their venture capital investments, uh, 15 million in February. Uh, Leverage EDU uh, raising 6.5 million. Adventus raised 8.5 million. Uh, so, uh, Educately, a, a new player on the on the student uh, student ambassadors kind of scheme. Uh, announced a million in investment uh, this uh, this year, this past year, and government partnerships in Ireland and Egypt. So there's a lot of this this huge growth in this space, and uh, it's hard to keep keep it straight in terms of which player does what. Uh, and as uh, this this pie article certainly goes very much in depth. It's one of these year in review kind of uh, articles. Uh, talks about some of the newer platforms as well that are po that are popping on the scene. Uh, so we're really seeing. Uh, Many and very some very niche uh, uh, platforms that are popping up for maybe the student athlete sites, uh, student athlete programs. Uh, there's a lot to digest in this article in terms of uh, understanding what uh, what what's what some of the new what new phenomenon we're seeing on the horizon that may impact you and what you do in your in your work and what you're able to do. Um, we also see. Uh, big big powerhouses, traditional powerhouses like IDP, uh, they launched what IDP Live to offer students what they call a fast track service through the application process. Uh, they um, we've seen a lot of these agents uh, networks, these ag aggregators start looking at fairs for their the students that are on their platforms, virtual fairs. Uh, obviously, have dominated every every international uh, recruitment office's uh, jobs the last uh, twenty months. Uh, and it's really just uh, only seems to be growing, and I know a lot of um, a lot of institutions right now are at an, a tipping point in terms of, well, are we going all in with with virtual now, uh, and the various tools that we have? Are we still going to do any uh, physical recruitment when and if uh, it becomes easy to do, easier to do? Uh, there are a few uh, intrepid groups, call uh, uh, colleagues that. Uh, USEG uh, did a, a successful tour this past fall uh, in the Middle East to a few countries uh, with a lot of um, uh, rapid uh, rapid PCR tests that they had they had to take entering and leaving countries. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, that going on in order to make it work. Individuals have done. I've, I know several colleagues have done individual travel this past fall, usually just to one or two countries because of depending on what the, the quarantine and vaccination requirements were in the different countries. So there's a lot of positives coming out of, in terms of services that institutions can and should take advantage of. And there's a real need for kind of a, 
a vetting process for what 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 makes sense. I know one one uh, one um, one institution I'm working with there. Uh, really exploring this space for the first time ever in terms of international recruitment and being intentional about it. And over the past eight, nine months, they've, they've gone through, uh, basically everybody under the sun has, has contacted them because they can, they're a big name, uh, potentially a bigger name internationally than they are currently. And they really see, uh, are, are being, um, getting everybody who's on many, almost everybody that's on this list has contacted them at one point or another trying to find out if they'd be interested in their services. And it's interesting for me as a consultant going, working with them, kind of reviewing some of these, getting a sense for what works, what isn't, and what's, uh, everybody put, obviously is putting their best foot forward, but nobody really has, very few have a, a proven track record yet in terms of results for clients. So it's, uh, there's a real risk involved in taking that next step. But you do see many, one of the common themes I've seen is that you, in how ad tech space is developed, you've seen much, a much greater focus on not just lead gen, not just driving applications, not just conversion, but providers that can provide a, a wide range, uh, basically uh, prospect to enrolled student range of per services that institution, institutions can see value in and know that if they have physical people on the ground to uh, people on the ground in their key markets, it's going to help them develop those resources, uh, develop those students in, from initial prospects into enrolled. Uh, that's, that's something that you really, you, you want to, uh, certainly my, my advice is as many of these ed tech companies that are coming coming your way that are dying to have a uh, just a minute of your time to talk with you about their products and their services, be be circumspect about it. You obviously you want to check referrals. You don't want to commit to anything until you know that they can they can deliver on what they're promising. And you also need to see value in money in terms of uh, for for the money that you're going to be expending. Are they delivering something that's for the for what they're charging? Is it helping you achieve your goals? Is it just filling up the top of the funnel and that's it, and the rest is up to you? But they're charging you agent rates for those. Uh, if you enroll any of those students, where you're doing all the hard work, all they're doing is filling the top of the funnel for you. That's that's one challenge. Uh, one question you certainly need to be asking yourself. Uh, or are they really hand-holding? Are they uh, customized service uh, really for your institution, able to end-to-end -end help you work with individual students through the process? Are they able to meet those needs that you have? And are they, uh, under, they, do they understand your, your campus? Do they understand your requirements? Do they understand the kinds of students you're looking for? If that's not the case, everybody's going to say they do and say they are those things, but are they, uh, do you think they're able, actually able to get it? And you're not going to get that from the, certainly fresh out of the box companies that are trying to, trying to uh, get your business. Um, but uh, and certainly you want to leverage your who you are and what you can do uh, and your reputation as an institution to maybe get a, a free six month trial to see if you are able to move the needle at all on, on through the use of the products. But there's there's all, always caution in out there in terms of uh, you need to be uh, circumspect. You need to certainly uh, dot all your I's, cross all your T's in terms of your homework you're doing on these companies, not just relying on what they send you, but certainly getting the references 
and understanding what the what they're actually able to deliver on because it's if unless you're you, you spend time understanding those uh the each and each provider's level of service and what they do and what they don't do uh you you are putting your you yourself at a disadvantage uh by really making sure you're doing your homework that's why we want to provide these uh these these chats every week to kind of highlight what those issues are that you need to be aware of as you're being assaulted by uh, vendor after vendor looking to uh, earn your business but it, there's, if there's one truth in this mix, how, uh, in answering the question, how has the international student recruitment landscape changed, the second question today, it's, it has changed dramatically. The pandemic has shifted priorities for almost every institution I, I'm working with uh, in terms of what their focus is, what they're willing to commit to, what they're not willing to do anymore. Uh, and that means that it, it puts more pressure on the individual decision makers to really make sure they're doing their homework. Not that you didn't, weren't having to do that before, but you have to learn more about these providers, about what they do, what they don't do in spaces that maybe you've never thought of. So it is, it is really an important time uh, that it is changing the way we do business. Much like when I first uh, first started going to NASA conferences in the 90s, uh, the, the exhibit hall was much smaller than it is today. And it was usually the other pavilions from other countries and their universities and a few service providers here and there. But my goodness, in the early 2000s, the, uh, you just saw a veritable explosion of service providers that would help you at every point in the process, both for inbound international students, outbound outbound uh, study abroad students that really uh, just uh, you go to that exhibit hall now and I'm looking forward to going again into, into NAFSA in Denver back in person for the first time since 2019 uh, what that's going to look like and how important those dynamics and that opportunity to have that in-person experience to get to know the potential people that you're going to be doing business with meeting them personally and having that experience because that Frankly, we want we need to get back to that because we've lost a lot in the last two years in terms of our uh, ability to really connect with who we're who we're doing business with on a regular basis in person because relationships still are at the heart of everything we do in international education, and the stronger ones uh, that we have are going to be the ones that are built on trust on uh, on that firsthand knowledge that relational knowledge we have with the people that we're we're doing business with that we ultimately can only truly be done well in person. So keeping those relationships going is gonna be an important step moving forward and uh, ability to do that in person again uh, is something we're, we'll, we'll continue to focus on here on the Roundup. Now our final question for the week, uh, question number three. It's a little off topic uh, in terms of international education, but has elements of it that are, are you'll, you'll see as we go through this. And that is, is Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, right about how the West should approach China? And this article came out on Christmas Day out, out on Reuters. Um, so, and I, in reading it, I was like, oh my goodness, he's, 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 not, he's not wrong. <laughs> uh, this is uh, an article that Reuters covered that um, uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau said in an interview that... Um, Western countries should have a, a more united front against China to prevent the Asian state from using commercial interests to play them against each other. And this is something uh, 
that uh, it's it's obviously clear when you and you look at it when you when you are able to take a step back. We in the United States and other countries around the world that rely on China for trade. Um, certainly in the United States, uh, one of the biggest topics over the last few months has been supply chain issues uh, with uh, orders taking um, weeks instead of days, months instead of uh, weeks uh, when we or when we order th certain things from our favorite online vendors. Uh, you realize that those goods come from somewhere. And going back to one of my favorite um, favorite books, uh, in uh, the middle 2000, 2000s, um, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, uh, one of the two books that I've actually had signed by authors that I read for work. Uh, th that's his, in that book, he, he talks about the global supply chain and how interconnected everybody is. And we've certainly seen that uh, during the pandemic with uh, why why goods ta have taken much longer to to arrive? There have been labor shortages here in the United States to for manufacturers in the U.S. for uh, delivery companies, all of the all the pieces along the, in the puzzle. But you've also had those that are goods that are coming from overseas. Uh, we have had boats uh, parked off uh, parked off the coast of California and and uh, Washington, other major ports around the United States particularly on the West Coast, that are coming from China and Asia, where uh, they're just delayed because we can't get them into our country fast enough. Uh, there's been the ongoing trade wars uh, that we have had with, with China, not just in the U.S., but in other, other Western nations have had political debates, uh, or confrontations between Australia and China, China and New Zealand, China and the U.K., China and the U.S., uh, China and Canada. All the major Western powers have had their moments with, uh, with China and the, the leadership there. And he says, Trudeau says, that China has been playing Western countries against one another as they compete for access to economic opportunities in the country. We, everyone knows how big of a market China is uh, for Western, Western countries trying to get their goods sold there uh, and also what we're, able, what we're letting in from China. So it's, uh, it's an open market uh, uh, playing us off each other. China's seen as playing us off each other, uh, the Western powers, in an open market competitive way, which is interesting considering their model in country. Uh, that the, 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 he talks through in, this, uh, in the article about the relationships between Canada and, and China up in uh, Chile uh, since the 2018 detention of uh, Huawei Chief Financial Officer Meng Wanzhou on a U.S. extradition warrant, uh, and uh, China in a tit for tat detained two Canadians shortly afterward. Both of those have been, people have been released, as has uh, the CFO from Huawei. So there are uh, human rights issues that are in, in play here. Uh, there are boycotts. Uh, U.S. Uh, not sending. Uh, Canada is, is, is also joining the U.S. diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in Beijing uh, to send China a message over its human rights records. Uh, you've seen the interplay over um, student visas, particularly Chinese students in STEM fields that have been uh, an issue, Chinese students coming from uh, the military civil fusion strategy that China has from certain institutions that are kind of the breeding grounds, uh, in, for lack of a better terms, of uh, those um, future spies or intellectual property th thieves coming on the, coming over in the, to the United States. All of these are 
legitimate concerns that we've had in the U.S. that Canada's had on, on other issues as well. So uh, it's interesting to see how uh, whether Justin Trudeau's point can be taken uh, and implemented and uh, there can be some uh, cooperation among Western powers. But I think the the challenges that we all face, I, I know I've been talking about China quite a bit in recent uh, editions of the Roundup, uh, but it's not just for the United States here that this is an issue. Canada is dealing with this as well. Um, we look at some of the, the global geopolitics that's involved here between China and other countries. We've talked about the Belt and Road Initiative and what China's intentions have been with Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, other countries where they've been, been investing to for attempts to gain favor, for um, natural resources contracts for their country, for infrastructure, all these other things, educational uh, development. Uh, there's been so much uh, that goes on that most most folks who are doing their jobs in international education don't always see. And that's one of the things we, we try and bring up here on the Roundup. Uh, understanding uh, our who, who we're dealing with is uh, whether it's service providers, whether it's other countries, whether it's geopolitics, uh, this is something we need to need to have uh, in, in our toolkit uh, is that uh, that knowledge, that awareness of what's happening in the wider world and how uh, how relationships that we're trying to, uh, to establish in certain countries with certain vendors, with certain providers, with certain agents um, matter in terms of uh, what our context of that relationship is and will be moving forward. So. Uh, is he right uh, about working together as, as uh, Western countries so that China isn't seen to be taking advantage of us uh, and kind of toying with us, so to speak? And one thing that they do have a, a, a much better track record of in, in China than we do here in the United States is long-term planning. And with, uh, with the way their government system is set up, the Chinese Communist Party rules everything. It's a single-party state. Uh, and that uh, the current president, Xi, has been in power for many years now and has kind of beyond just uh, the cult of personality that uh, a leader in a communist nation can and does have, uh, he has successfully navigated some very interesting relationships with Western leadership. Uh, North Korea, with Russia, uh, that um, particularly when it comes to the West, they, uh, the attitude is, hey, uh, you're going to play by our rules if you want to work in our country. And that's, we would say the same thing in the United States, but how, they, how we are seen to have been played off, uh, again, Trudeau's uh, impression that the U.S. Is and others are being played against each other uh, when competing for Chinese attention in, in economic uh, investment in their, in their country. So we'll see where that goes. And we certainly see the edu international education benefits of, uh, and challenges we have uh, in, in recruiting international students from ch our Chinese students to our campuses. But we'll certainly keep, our, um, keep, keep a focus on China as we move forward because it's going to be the dominant player for the foreseeable future. Uh, and it's how we, how well we're informed about relationships and that we can and should have there, uh, and what what some of the dangers and pitfalls we need to be aware of uh, moving forward in those relationships. So that's all we have for you this week on the roundup. We thank you again for making us a part of your weekly international edification, and we'll look forward to chatting with you in the weeks and months to come. Cheers. <music>